Hey everyone, let's ramble for a little bit. to another episode of Theological Ramblings. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Janish, and always I have my co-host with me, Pastor Ross Henze. Why don't you say hi, Ross? Hello, everyone. And Pastor Tom Fricky. Good morning. Happy to be here. Yeah, I couldn't think of any ridiculous adjectives for this episode, so these guys are off the hook. It's just Ross and Tom today. Last episode, which was published some time ago, was called The Trinity. In that episode, we briefly discussed the nature of God, his attributes, and that he is three persons, yet one God. The three persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet he is perfectly united into one God, something that is never going to completely make sense. It's beyond our simple human understanding, but that's how God reveals himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, the Trinity. Now, in our next few episodes, we're going to be diving a little bit deeper and considering each person of the Trinity individually. So today we are going to discuss the Father. So first, why do we refer to the first person of the Trinity as the Father? And when God reveals himself to us as the Father, what's he trying to communicate? Or to ask it another way, why didn't God reveal himself as the master or the mother or the force? Uh, Tom, could you answer that question? Sure. It's a little bit hard to give a clear answer without having a clear explanation uh, to this question that the Lord has provided in Scripture. But I think there are a few things that we can say based on the contrast that you provide. He's not our master. Uh, not like a Baal or like even Allah today to today's Muslims. Um, God is is a loving God, and so he's not legalistic or or law-based. He's a God who who shares his love with us, as the gospel explains. Um, And yet he didn't choose to reveal himself in feminine terms either. He he calls himself as our father. Jesus Christ is his son. I think about Philip in in John's gospel asking, you know, after Jesus has spoken about the father, just show us the father and we'll believe in him. And and Jesus says, you know, don't you know me? If anyone has seen me, they have already seen, they have also seen the father. In other words, Jesus kind of reveals who the father is too. Jesus came as a human being, as a man. Um, and he, he's personal. He's not just a force. He's uh, protecting. He's loving. And uh, he, he treats us as his children with a father's love. Thanks, Tom. So kind of spinning off that, for what reasons can it be comforting to think of God as our father? Ross, could you take that one? I think... Uh what we would like to imagine, I think everyone would love to imagine, is that if they were to have a loving father, a father who, who recognizes, you know, he is there to guard and guide and protect his children. He's 
willing to move heaven and earth to try to make sure that they are loved and cared for. Now, I recognize that maybe everyone didn't grow up in a household like that, but if you, had, if you were blessed to have one, then you understand what that means, to have that person, that rock, that one that you can always go to, the one who is always there to protect you. I, I know scripture refers to it in, in Matthew where it talks about, you know, would, if, if your child is hungry, would you give him a stone or, you know, um, um, instead of a fish or, you know, something like that, uh, or if, instead of fish, you give him a snake, you know, something like that. So you look at this as that loving father who, whose purpose in life is to guard, protect, move heaven and earth to care for those he loves. Yeah, thank you. Now, although all the persons of the Trinity share attributes, usually the Father is primarily associated with the work of creation and preservation. So let's talk about creation first. Now, we could dedicate an entire episode to creation and everything it teaches us about our lives and our purpose and about God. But Ross, could you just briefly summarize the Father's work of creation? Wow, that's, uh, that's not an easy question to answer because it is, is, as you mentioned, it is such an overwhelming topic. But to, I would briefly try to explain it as God then planned. He planned out how he was going to create the world, how he was going to create the universe. And, and then we would see his glory through all of his creation, the vastness, the beauty of it. I know in the book of Job, there's reference to, you know, where God says to Job, were you there when I laid the earth's foundations, when I, when I marked off its dimensions? So it's telling us that God gave it great thought and he planned it out. Uh, I think one thing that is so amazing to me is just the word create itself. It, it means to make out of nothing. You know, so if I'm a construction worker and I'm going to go build a house, I have all these different tools. I have all these different materials. Yet God simply said, let there be, and there was. That is absolutely amazing to me, uh, to create out of nothing. He simply said, let there be. He planned it out, and it is truly a testament to his power and his glory. Yeah. Yeah, another way we can think of the Father is he's this wonderful craftsman who created the world and us in just this beautiful, wonderful way. You know, Genesis did it in six days, and uh, we all know that story, hopefully from Sunday school, first day, light and darkness, and so on and so forth. So let's just zero in on one aspect of God's creative work right now, the creation of human beings. Here is a quote from Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, Tom, could you offer some commentary on the fact that we're created in the image of God? Yeah, there are a couple of things I think you can say about uh, that 
concept of the image of God. The first one is that it has nothing to do with outward appearance. It's not how we look. It's not outward form, but it has to do with something that is internal. We sometimes summarize it in saying, well, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. They were sinless. They were holy, uh, just like God. It involves a little bit more than just that. I think a good way to explain that is that every thought and every desire that uh, Adam and Eve had was in complete harmony and consonance with God's wishes and his desires. But we also have to say in the same breath that that image was at least partially lost through the fall. It is partially restored now as the Holy Spirit creates faith in our hearts as believers and it's never going to be completely fulfilled or completely restored until we're with our Lord eternally in heaven. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned a big, another big thing we have to talk about, which is the fall where that image was, was lost, and that's kind of a very sad thing. It's kind of beautiful to think uh, we were originally made in God's image, but then we lost it. But for now, let's just think about originally humans were created in the image of God. What value does that give humans if originally we were made in God's image? You want me to take that one? Yes, please. I would say that um, one thing that is, that is quite unique is that only the human beings were created in God's image. That means that we're special that we have this unique relationship with our God and human beings were the crowning glory of his creation and that means that uh, as as part of that the value is is that we are the instruments through whom we can carry out God's plan and purpose in this world to care for the world to care for each other to also share the good news of Jesus as our Savior so it means that uh, we have we're special. We have that. We've been created in the image of God. That special relationship with our Lord. Yeah. Thank you. Now we mentioned that God created the earth in six days, and we also believe that creation was only about six to ten thousand years ago. Now the prevailing theory in our society is that the universe is about fourteen billion years old and that life first evolved on this earth around 3.5 billion years ago. And so human beings are just a product of evolution that originally started with very simple bacteria that came together from, you know, inorganic chemicals and evolved and evolved and evolved until eventually you see all life here we have today. Now these are two vastly different views of existence. If creation is true, like you said, Ross, we are these special creations of God made in his image, the crown of his creation. On the other hand, if there is no God, we are the chance result of natural processes. Now, some people try and combine creation and evolution. They say, well, God got everything started and then evolution took over. This is called theistic evolution. Basically, it means that God guided evolution and through it brought us where we are today. So, Tom, for what reasons do we stick to a six-day interpretation of the Genesis account? And what are the dangers when we combine creation and evolution? 
Well, that's a really big question, but first of all, I would just answer very, very simply. It's because this is the way the Bible speaks about creation. It took place in six normal days. If you take a look at uh, the account in Genesis chapter 1, it, it makes it very clear, evening and morning, each of those days, these were normal days as we conceive of them. And then you take a look at the comparison that is made when God gives the commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, as uh, the people are to work for six days and rest on the seventh, comparison there is that in six days God made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. The implication clearly that these are normal days as we understand them. In, in Romans chapter 5, St. Paul makes a really kind of interesting comment there too. As by one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, Paul is basically putting things in this order. That first of all, human beings entered the world. And then as Genesis tells the story in chapter 3, sin entered the world after human beings were created and death came as a result of sin. Evolution gets that order exactly mixed up. Death comes into the world first and over a process of billions of years, then ultimately human beings emerge. And so it violates not just some understanding of the Old Testament history, but also the way uh, the New Testament uh, explains how sin came into this world. And then uh, it's also, I think, important to, to, to recognize that, that theistic evolution is kind of a self-defeating philosophy. I mean, if we have evolved as human beings, then um, it stands to reason that also our religion has evolved as well. And if that's the case, then revelation may not be complete. It may not even be accurate. I mean, we may have other things that we need to learn about God. Maybe we're not fully evolved in our religion. It just makes our faith, Christian faith, totally incomprehensible and kind of hard to uh, to grasp onto. There's nothing sure and nothing certain about it. And so in a way, if you as a Christian adopt theistic evolution as a part of your theological system, you're cutting off the branch that you're sitting on. Okay, You're basically making it difficult for you to feel any confidence that the truth that God has given to, to us in his word is absolute truth. But one thing that is really important to remember is that evolution is a totally atheistic concept and uh, creation is totally based on the idea that there is a God, okay? And if you try to mix the two, you're going to have some problems. Uh, if there is a God, it's totally reasonable to surmise and suppose and conclude that yes, he is the creator who put this world here and uh, it's a wonderful thing. If there is no God, well, evolution is all you got. The two simply don't mix. Yeah, you said a lot, and you said it well, Tom. You know, a number of things you said. Uh, I liked your illustration of cutting off the branch you're sitting on. One way I like to put it, too, is that creation is like the foundation of a building, you know, and if you attack that foundation, the whole the whole building falls. And uh, you mentioned the order, death, sin, human beings. Well, if evolution is true, it goes death, human beings. And then even sin is just a concept that human beings have made up, you know. So, Russ, you'd like to add some things. Well, I agree with everything that Tom said. 
I think a lot of it is going to come down to, do you believe the Bible is really the authoritative Word of God? Yes or no. And if you believe that this is the authoritative Word of God, this is where we go. But on the question itself of evolution, the part that always gives me great comfort is when you go and you read the account of creation and God will say, it says in there that God created everyone according to its kind. So rhinoceroses produce rhinoceroses. They don't produce giraffes. So they, you know, each one was created in its kind. The fruit trees, the, uh, the plants, the animals were all made according to their kinds. So for me, that, that, you know, you don't have evolution or God's not sitting back in his lazy boy and just letting everything kind of take out, take its own life or run its own course. But God actually, this is what he did, is he created it, each one specifically. And that's what really helps me. So that's why I thought I'd add a note. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's kind of one apologetic argument. So audience, if you're not familiar with apologetic arguments, they're rational arguments of the defense of Scripture. And yeah, God does say he created everything according to its kind. And in science, you know, just as a side note, science in, is always changing and so are apologetic arguments. So this may become outdated, but we don't observe kinds changing. For example, we haven't observed birds evolving into reptiles. We see birds adapting within their own species, their own kind, but that is one thing that science hasn't observed. You know, a fish turning into an amphibian or a bird turning into a reptile. So yeah, thank you for that, Ross. All right, so we covered creation. Now let's move on to God the Father's preservation. Some people hold to a deistic view of things, and that means that uh, God got everything started, but now he follows a hands-off approach. He allows the world to go on its course based on its natural laws. The old analogy for this type of thinking is that creation is like a watch. God put all the intricate little cogs together. He wound the watch up, and now the watch is ticking away. God doesn't really tend to his creation. Now, a lot of the America's founding fathers believed in this kind of thinking, but the scriptures don't really describe God as being a distant, aloof creator who follows a hands-off approach. No, God the Father is active in preserving his creation. So, Ross and Tom, could you each give the audience a passage or two that assures us that God is active in preserving his creation? We'll let, uh, we'll let Ross go first. Well, I think the, the passages that uh, really hit me, that came to mind right away, are, are found here in Matthew chapter 6, uh, it, where Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body not more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And it goes on. So that's Matthew chapter 6 beginning at verse 
25, uh, making it very clear that even now our Lord is very much hands-on in caring for us. Yeah. Tom, you got some passages to add? Sure. I, I, one that just comes to mind immediately is after Noah emerges from the ark once the flood is completed. God gives this promise, as long as the earth endures seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. And that's a beautiful, beautiful, reassuring promise from the Lord. But I also like the personal uh, uh, the personal comment that, that David makes in Psalm 3. He says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Every morning I get up because the Lord is with me. He's watching over me. It's a beautiful, beautiful reassurance that, that we have there in that scripture. Yeah, I love that Psalm 3 passage. You know, I, I think of that one sometimes before I go to bed. You know, I lie down and sleep and I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Now, hopefully you guys can help me. Which Do you know which psalm it is where God said, or the psalmist says, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing? Which psalm is Psalm that? 145, I think that's in verses four, 15 and 16 there. Uh, yeah. But yeah, the Lord takes care of us. Yeah, another passage that God describes himself as very active in creation. And um, some people use that kind of as their meal prayer. You know, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Okay, so talking about um, preservation, uh, a, a cool doctrine to kind of consider is the doctrine of vocation. So, Tom, could you explain the doctrine of vocation and how it fits into God's preservation? Sure. It, it's simply this, that every calling in life, provided that it's not sinful, uh, that it helps other people in some kind of way, is a true calling from God. You don't have to be clergy or some kind of synodically called worker in order to be actually serving God with your calling in life. So just be the best farmer, the best cheesemaker, the best seamstress, the best newspaper writer, or whatever it might be that you can possibly be. Go to mom, be a good mom, dad, grandpa, uh, grandma, uh, or son or daughter. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Ross, you got anything you'd like to add for that one? I think when we talk about preservation, it's, it's important to recognize that God does provide for us normally through natural means. But sometimes he'll take care of us through miracles as well, which we could go into great deal of detail on. But by natural means, that's really what we're getting at and what Pastor Fricky talked about, the ability to work, to provide for ourselves, to provide for others. So the person who works in the auto factory is putting a car together so that somebody else purchases that car and it allows them to get to their job. Or maybe it allows them to get to the, they're a nurse and allows them to get to the hospital to care for someone else. And uh, the farmer, you think about the, the, the grain that he, uh, and the corn, and, and how that is going to go off and feed thousands. So God has given us all these, uh, our vocations, our ability to work to care for those we know and love, but also to care for others. Yeah, so audience, it's kind of cool to think of that as part of your identity. You know, part of who you are is you are a mask of God that is part of his preservation of this creation. Even if, you know, if you're a, you're a plumber, you know, you're keeping people safe by making sure they have clean water and uh, making sure the waste goes to a place so that the clean water and the waste doesn't mix. You know, if you're a uh, a farmer was mentioned. You're you're feeding people. If uh, if you're a garbage collector, you, again, you're making sure 
our our creation is is sanitary so you're a mask of god providing for god's creation now i also find the doctrine of preservation very comforting that god preserves us ross and tom can you tell the audience why the doctrine of preservation is comforting we'll let ross go first to me the part that i find most comforting is that i know that god is always going to be there he is always going to care for me no matter what and then i i i make it try to make it personal and i and i look back at my own life and i and i look at those instances in my own life where maybe you're you get stuck in the mud in the muck or or maybe life is not going well and you're having this trial, this whatever it is that's going on at this time, and yet somehow, some way, God led you through, didn't he? And then as you get older, you have more of these experiences, your faith grows, you become more uh, confident that the Lord is really there, and you just see how the Lord has been there for you time after time after time, and it just gives you great comfort to know that he will continue to do so till he calls us home. Yeah. Tom, anything else? Well, one thing I, I continually think about is that not only does God watch over me, he watches over my loved ones. I may not be there with the people I love, with my children. They're grown and they're in different parts of the state and different parts of the country. Uh, but, but God's watching over them, too. He, he's powerful, he's nurturing, he's caring. And uh, not only is he going to be with me throughout my life, I know he's going to be with my children, my grandchildren, and the great-grandchildren that have yet to be born uh, down through the years. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, God's preservation, he's with us, providing for us, and protecting us. Very comforting. So regarding the first person of the Trinity, we call him our Father, as the scriptures do. He is the creator of all things, and the crown of his creation is human beings, you and me. You are beautifully and wonderfully made, and God uses you through your vocations to care for his creation. As our Father, he is not distant. He's active in preserving his creation and ruling all things for our benefit. So that's our show for today. We hope you will join us next time. God bless.